I'm John Stobart. I'm Alan Gregory Fox. And we are Pennywise Dreadful. As is our custom, we'd like to start with our content warning, just to give you all a bit of a heads up that things might go a bit askew. So, Stephen King writes horror fiction and frequently explores the dark side of human nature. At times during this podcast, we will be discussing events that some listeners may find disturbing or even traumatising. And I'm not going to say it, Alan. I'm not going to say this one is particularly relevant because they all are. Um, yeah, I think the whole point of the uh, the content warning is there are no exceptions to the rule. <laughs> yes. But I wondered whether you meant that things are going to go askew in terms of the content of the text under discussion or in terms of the fact that we're all uh, climbing the walls, you know, Jack Torrance-like. Well, it could be either, couldn't it? You know, we don't know where we'll get to. So <laughs> I might just have a bit of a mental breakdown halfway through and start rocking gently. And yeah, As long as you don't have an axe under your desk, I think we're okay. No, I've got a sword in the corner, but it's a ceremonial one, so it's not sharp. Uh, I think it's threatening enough, though. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. But swords aren't something we're going to talk about today, or axes particularly, are we? No, fire maybe, not fire. not. Uh... And you know, um, a screwdriver. Yeah. But not uh, not swords and axes particularly. No, different weapons of choice today. So today we're going to talk about the second uh, novella in the Four Past Midnight. So this is Two Past Midnight, and this is Secret Window, Secret Garden. Yes, I think possibly my favourite of the eight novellas in the the two sort of uh, collections that we sort of. I I always see them as a pair, uh, different seasons and and Four Past Midnight. I think this is my favourite of the eight of them. Okay. Oh, I wouldn't go that far, but I do like it. Yeah, it has nothing to do with Johnny Depp. No. My my liking of it. I think, um, I'd kind of like to avoid talking about... um, I think, I think, no, I don't know, because I think it's worth talking about the changed ending. Yeah, okay. In Um, narrative terms rather than Johnny Depp terms. Sure. But I do think from, it was interesting, can you may drink? Um... I think that the film was heavily marketed on Johnny Depp's presence, rather than the sort of narrative qualities of the film. And I think that's a shame, given the source material and the strength of the source material. Yeah, I think, to be perfectly frank, I think this is a really strong novella. I think this would have stood alone without being part of a collection. Yeah, Um, although, because of the collection it's in, you can't, and because of and because we're sort of analysing everything chronologically, mm. it does sit uh, very neatly as a we're sort of venturing very sharply back into dark half territory. Yes. So in yeah. terms of where it sits in its chronology, yeah, um, you can understand why it's maybe been included mm-hmm. if you are. So if you do see this text as, as I do, you know, four past midnight as the sort of transition from dark half to needful things which follows yeah um you can sort of see why yeah it's been or why it's been included in this rather than standing independently but like you say it's perfectly possible to read it independently and uh critique it as such yes i think so um so is there anything particular that stood out for you in this book alan 
I think last time I led, and there was a lot of things with the Langoliers, Langoliers, mm. that I picked up on and I asked you about. So maybe you've got some ideas about Secret Window. I certainly think from, from a masculinity's point of view, I mean, you know, putting my masculinity studies uh, scholar hat on, um, and given, if I... <laughs> Literally putting a hat on. Uh, for the benefit of the tape, I have donned my, my trilby, um, which I don't know whether that would make me look like a uh, shooter or not, but um, <laughs> this is probably a bit newer than... Uh, and I think shooters is a fedora, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so. Sort of Terry Pratchett-esque. Mm. Um, but no, I, I think that from a masculinity studies point of view, there's, there are there's lots to pick apart in this. Okay. I mean, in terms of like... You know, uh, Mort Rainey's various relationships, and also in terms of the the parallels that can be drawn between him and Shooter, and then you know Thad and George Stark mm. in, in Dark Half, and Roland and and the Man in Black mm-hmm. in the Dark Tower. But you know, also in terms of you know, I think it also kind of echoes a lot of. King's frequently recurring themes in terms of um, writer's block, although it's never explicitly mentioned that he has writer's block. No. But I think that you could read it that he has writer's block. Well, I think that's... Yeah. Yeah, in the same way as with The Dark Half, I read George as an outlet for writer's block. Sure. I I think... John Shooter is fulfilling some of the same roles for Mort. Sure. Sort of. Yeah, and also I wondered what you thought of, you know, I can't remember who, it, which scholar it is that sort of talks about the scrapbook in, it might actually be Tony Magistrali, that talks about the scrap, the scrapbook in The Shining. Yeah. And how um, Jack sort of uses the scrapbook as an outlet to escape writer's block in the sense that he retreats into the Overlook's history and decides to almost take on an alternative writing project. Yeah. Um, to, in order to escape his own failings in doing something sort of autonomous. Mm. Um, you know, yeah, Magistrali talks about it and he talks about how um, scrapbooks, photo albums and diaries are a recurring motif. Sure. And things like um, Misery, It and The Shining and they serve, as a, they serve to forge a connection. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, I think so. But I think he, he goes a bit further at some point and says something about um, the scrapbook. As I say, it allows him to retreat into the Overlook's history and sort of author a project that doesn't require any creative energy of his own. Yeah. So uh, it's a creative outlet that requires no creativity. Mm. And I kind of think the similar thing is going on here. Okay. Um, because particularly once, once it's established that Shooter is a sort of uh, phantasm of his own creation, mm. it's almost like he's trying to find any means possible of preventing him from writing because he doesn't sort of have any 
um, confidence in his ability to to write anything um, substantial under his own creative um, juices. Okay, yeah. So, um, Tony Magistrali in Stephen King's American Storyteller writes about the scrapbook. Uh-huh. Um, and he says it plays a very important part in especially the first half of the novel and it's the first evidence of the hotel's direct ability to, 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 direct ability to seduce Jack and likewise Jack's susceptibility to being seduced mm. does that work? yeah I think something similar is going on here yeah um, and he also um, says that the, the scrapbook in The Shining is so central to the narrative that it appears at a critical junction in the book and is, an ex- and is the exclusive subject of its own chapter. And it's possible to say that its existence and Torrance's attitude towards it point the way to the unravelling of the marriage and King and King Jack being subsumed by the powers of the hotel. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, it's kind of, it manifests differently in that Mort's um, marriage to Amy is already over by the time you sort of, by the time the narrative begins. But I just feel that, I think part of the the appeal of this particular story was that, that Mort kind of, if you see Mort as the architect of his own downfall, he creates various potential exits for himself at so mm-hmm. many points yeah and he never takes any of them you know it's like when he when he gets in touch with his agent and says you know oh this guy's hassling me can you get you know um oh well um can you send me the copy of the original story that predates the one that he says he wrote yeah um you know and it's like well i can send i can get I know the publisher pretty well. I can get you a photocopy by tomorrow. No, a photocopy's not good enough. It's like, well, you're the guy. You know, we know retrospectively you're the guy. (laughs) You could have accepted a photocopy. He's trying to create roadblocks where there doesn't necessarily have to be any. Yeah, I agree. But I think also if you're thinking of this as a multiple personality narrative, I've not done very much research into that... um, idea but the idea of being embodied by two people sure is that the right phrase to use i don't know if somebody can tell me i i wouldn't be i i I understand where that term would uh, apply (laughs) but neither one of them know the other one exists oh i see what you mean which is what seems to be happening with morton shooter because he said this is a bit, there's a bit at the end, doesn't he, where he says that he didn't know that shooter he was shooter. There was no knowledge of that. Um, and and that's and there's also this kind of idea that he goes to sleep a lot. Yeah. There is a little bit. It is a little bit Fight Club, you know. Yeah. Yes, exactly that, <laughs> that. I had wondered about asking you whether there was any parallels between Fight Club and this novel, given that there does seem to be a similar. A similar thing going on, really. You know that that somebody's consciousness is taking over in Fight Club, as we know. You know Tyler's. You, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I think. I think certainly in terms of structure, there is. Like I said, in terms of the. Not in the narrative trajectory or anything. No, no. Um, I think in terms of the. Certainly in terms of of Mort's 
and masculinity as well i was thinking about yeah sure because tyler enacts what's his name uh well joe isn't it yeah he enacts his masculinity doesn't he really sure that's what he's doing and i think john shooter to a great extent is enacting mort's masculinity he is but what i find if you view fight club as the parallel text Tyler is is Joe in an idealized form. Yeah. In a way, I I don't see Shooter as as Mort Rainey's idealized form in the sense that if if Mort considers and Shooter view themselves predominantly as you know as see their status as writer as the predominant facet of their um, masculinity mm. or their masculine identity. Then throughout the the narrative, and I think that's why the sort of the end game is so well staged. You know, throughout the the narrative, you still get the sense that Mort holds all the cards in terms of well, you know, I'm the you know the better writer. I was published first. You know, I've you know he has control for so long. You get the sense that it just needs one push for it to topple. Yeah, but he's given so many opportunities to seize control yeah. and a lot of that comes from his superior status as writer so it doesn't quite manifest no, in the same way. I think I wasn't quite thinking I was thinking in terms of heteronormative masculinity uh-huh. so you know John Shooter's stronger, John Shooter's John Shooter is more the idealised ye olde American masculine man, do you know what yeah, I mean? Sort of like John Wayne on asses Right, and so that's that's almost been an ideal representation for a long time in American culture, hasn't it? Sure. In amongst um, a certain group of American people. And so do you think maybe that's why uh, Mort being cockholded by Amy is so central to the narrative yeah, I as do. well? And the fact, you know, we, we, we learn the links as we go along that um, whatever his name is that Amy marries... It's like the, Ted, isn't Ted, it? He um he comes from shooters and so Home, the hometown yeah yeah so the person who becomes the dominant figure in Mort's psyche yeah is definitely words are failing me yeah he he is a sort of hyperbole yeah or hyper and he's it, yeah. you know the influences are the person who, the person who he caught Amy in bed with is referenced in jo in the name. Yeah. And he's every bit of the, the American man, you know? Yeah, yeah. That Mort isn't. Sure. It's th so that's what I was thinking. So in Fight Club, we've got Tyler, who's the man in the Fight Club, and, and, and enacting masculinity. Mm. Does that make it, sense? Yeah, as I say, you know, maybe in a hyperbolized yeah. form, a hyper... Uh, masculine sense. I do, I do see though where you're coming from about the idea of, of Mort being the one in the superior one in terms of writing ability mm. as the story centres around writing ability. Well I do see what you mean in terms of in terms of the various facets of the persona of John Shooter as Mort creates yeah. him he very deliberately represents everything that Mort is not yeah. and actually I wondered it's just sort of occurred to me as we've been chatting that 
in the sort of you know the, in the American dream sense, and you know the the kind of whether the the name Mort is is sort of significant in that it suggests that Mort is effectively already dead, yes. you know, and that, that John Shooter is very much alive yes. in, in, in counterbalance to the sort of living death that Mort is currently yeah. experiencing. Yeah. And what, because because of the, this reread and the deliberate looking at it as an, in an analytical way, I'd only ever read this, I'd read it twice, but both times I was probably in my teenage years. Mm-hmm. So what I was getting was, isn't this dead weird? What's going on? No, this couldn't have been him. And then the second time I was reading it and I knew what the outcome was and I could see oh. that the things, I wasn't thinking of this as uncanny, gothic, any of any of the things. And But then reading it this time, the first thing I thought was Mort. That's death. Yeah. It doesn't help that I had a... I was reading it sat opposite my shelf of Terry Pratchett books. <laughs> and Mort's literally sat in. Yeah, I think... So, despite the fact that the way he dresses is very much like, you know, he's almost sheathed in, in Dex clothing. He's very much like, you know, Man in Black. You yeah. know, there, there's a sort of, you know, sort of feel to him. Mm-hmm. You can almost see him also appearing as a Randall Flagg-type figure. Absolutely. Um, but you do sort of think that... That fedora is going to be black. The 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 overcoat he's wearing, or what, I always got the sense he was in an overcoat. <laughs> it would be a black one, and yeah. that he had like you know a black shirt and trousers and sort of boots that were you know black. And that, um, but I mean that's just the way I visualised him in my head, regardless of if it uh, departed from the way. Yeah, because I think he's he's dressed. I think I envisage him to be dressed more cowboyish, but that might just be because of my my own thoughts about yeah. John Shooter. Sure. Um, I don't know. I sort of imagined him in, in cowboy guise, but with an overcoat over his sort of waistcoat and, you know, kind of, you know, the sort of, you know, the, the guys that you see in, like, these films where they go, you want to buy knockoff watches? And they sort of <laughs> yeah. open up this really deep overcoats full of like you know fake rolex watches <laughs> in one side and then fake knives on the other you know that sort of thing so you've got the sort of the cowboy aesthetic but with the possible you know the dodgy salesman overcoat with sort of um you know over the top so hmm. one of but, the things i thought was really the one of the most uncanny moments for me in this book before we get on to talking details mm. was you know towards the end um he stood talking to somebody isn't he Morty's. no he stood talking to shooter and somebody goes past and waves at uh, the beginning yeah no but at the end where we get a retrospective of that i went to see oh right guy. i see what you mean yeah 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 and he was by and and mort was by himself but then i then you get a little bit further on and he didn't want to say anything but when he looked in the rear view mirror there was two people stood there and two cars and i thought that was one of the most uncanny moments of that that mort had managed to make that real yeah you know that that this presence that is internalized in his head as we knew has been given some sort of corporality 
corporeality. Yeah, yeah corporeality. That's yeah. the jobby. That that his ability to imagine made made his alter ego manifest. Sure. And again, I think that's a throwback to to the dark half, mm. and I think that's I think that's what that's trying to achieve. But I think that also, sadly, given his the, the sort of you know the nature of his um, demise, it sort of shows that the creative power that resides within Mort Rainey as a creative force. So it's therefore quite sad that he yeah. feels he has to retreat in the way that he has done. And I think to go on, to go back to saying the Gothic, I think this this book, like the Dark Half, is so filled with Gothic tropes and 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 themes that you could just be hit over the head with them, couldn't you? Really? Yeah, I think as well as I mean, I think that's the case with all four of the novellas in this collection. I think, okay. whereas we've had we had extensive conversations with with Jen and Andy when we're talking different seasons about how. Different Seasons is very much a departure from King's typical yeah. um, stock and trade. Um, there, in was a way a lot of, there was a lot of realistic, in inverted commas, things rather than supernatural, wasn't there? Yeah. Um, whereas this is a kind of... You almost feel like this is a kind of do-over mm. of, the, of the Different Seasons format. Yeah. But, but that sort of more explicitly embraces the kind of the gothic and, and horror tropes that King is kind of uh, typically associated with. Yeah, I think, I, I think this this one in particular does seem to wear that on wear its gothicness on its sleeve, despite yeah, the so. fact that it's you know there's a lot of um, it's not particularly a gothic setting. It's not particularly you know there's not it's not overtly gothic in its explicitness, but. No. You know, just just nestling under the surface is all the secrets of the Gothic. You know, the doubling and all of that. It, it's like he read a how-to write Gothic stories <laughs> and came up with this. And came up with this to some degree. Not that I'm denigrating his ability to do this because I couldn't. That's why no. I'm an analyst, not a creative writer. Yeah, tell me about it. Um, but yeah, um, but I think. As a how-to, I wonder whether that's that's the appeal. I mean, there's literally he's thrown everything and the kitchen sink that's gothic about this. You know, mm. I'm now imagining a matte black kitchen sink. <laughs> but um, there's also, I mean, he squeezed every possible ounce of gothicness into it. Mm. But there's not an ounce of fat on it either. No. You couldn't trim it down. There's everything that's that's in there, sort of. There's something gothic about each sort of set piece. Yeah. Um, I mean, even even Ted as a figure, whether it's because of his, you know, relationship to Shooter in Mort's mind, or because of the sort of the sense that he is, you know, because you get the sense that Amy has chosen him because he's an anti-Mort figure, but but he's also just as controlling. Yeah, I, I got the idea that Amy cared about Mort yeah. but didn't like the life that Mort had and the life she had with Mort so that you know Mort being famous and and I could see potentially I wasn't around Stephen King in the 1990s so I've got no idea but I could see potentially a tension there mm. with King's personal life with his family 
You know, mm. we saw recently, two or three years ago, um, Stephen King's wife did something. Tabitha King did something, didn't she? And everybody was like, oh, it's Stephen King's wife. She's not a person in her own right. And I think that was the vibe I was getting from Amy in this story. Yeah, I mean, I think you can certainly draw that parallel, although I think there is a sense that Amy is not a writer in the way that no, King is a writer no. in it. I, I, I was thinking more the social sure. ramifications sure. of being married to a famous author and not having privacy. When you think about you know, social media now, um, and the amount of people who do selfies outside Stephen King's house and things, the privacy disappears. And I yeah. imagine that was like that in the 90s, despite the not being social media in the way it is now. Sure. And not selfies, I... but people rocking up to his house and peeping through windows and, you know. And I could see that being a problem. I mean, I think, because I think this is the thing he's, he's spoken about at length. I mean, you get the sense that and I think that there's there's something very telling about the way that all of his writer protagonists none of them none of them have written as many books as he has no because I think there's a recognition particularly because of the way he went you know he was pretty much given the license to write for a living as soon as Carrie was sold. Mm. You know, I think there's a recognition that you only have to be famous for one book. Yeah. To or, you know, you don't have to have a massive body of work to to achieve the level of style that is that can be quite debilitating in terms of your uh, the um, obsessive relationships that can develop yeah. in the minds of fans, right? Which um, is takes us back to misery. Yeah, and that you know, I can I can see there being a thread here about the life of the author, and then the life of the family around the author. Sure, you know, I mean, and I think this one, uh, part of me thinks this one is trying to um, interrogate how being a successful writer affects the people around you, and I think Amy. I think Ted was just somebody she found and could have been anybody. You know? Yeah, he's a little bit of a sort of a... He's just not a famous uh, writer. Well, yeah, he's a little bit of an anonymous everyman, isn't yeah. he? He's deliberately so. Um, well, I do take exactly what you say about controlling and things. He has to be there. He has to be doing this. And, and that... that I, that was. It, it, I think it's also telling that it goes up a gear once Mort's gone. Mm. Yeah, you they're know, suddenly married. In terms of they, <laughs> they're immediately married, and you know the way that he tries to seize control of the negotiations yeah, about yeah. the divisions of, of Mort's estate. Yeah. Um, and really, I mean, he should have nothing to do with that. That's that's Amy's domain. You know, they don't have any. Um, children, they, you know, and I think regardless of the, you know, the acrimonious nature of the end of their married lives, you, you got to, like you say, that Mort did care for him. And she and cared it, about him. She's yeah. the one who drives to him. She's the one who rings him and says, are you all right? You can see that there is still a, a fondness. I wouldn't say love, but definitely a fondness there. Sure. That, yeah. Um, so yeah, I find I found the sort of 
immediate switch in in Ted's behaviour quite uncomfortable. Mm, I did too. Um, In that he, you know, it's like, presto change, oh, everything you wanted to escape, no, I'm still a bastard, you know? Yeah. Uh, One of the things I've been looking at in my wider life is the idea of women in agency. Okay. And having power, women having power of their own, which isn't, which isn't, Stephen Kingness, but I think that's I think there's a central theme there of women not having agency in this narrative. So, mm-hmm. and I'm particularly thinking about Amy because she's married to Mort. She doesn't have her own agency. She is an offshoot of Mort. You know, mm-hmm. she's married to Mort. The only she, she is Mrs. Mort Rainey. Yeah. yeah, and then Mort goes. Mm. Mort's dead, and then she instantly becomes Mrs. Ted. Yeah. She doesn't have any agency or power of her own, like you just said. And I think King's... I, I think that's a deliberate... You know, we're looking at 1990. We're not looking at 1980, 1978. We're not looking at the carry years anymore. We're looking at you know, a nearly contemporary world where female empowerment was starting to become a thing. In Britain, we were starting to have ladette culture and the sure. rise of girl power... And I think this novel, uh, this novella even, is exploring that tension that women were facing at that point. Yeah, I mean, okay. So my question to you then would be, are we see, could you therefore see, as much as her struggle isn't doesn't bear fruit, could you view Amy as a, as a sort of foregrounding Dolores Claiborne? Yeah, I do think so. And I think because we're not far from Dolores no, Claiborne in the chronology. Um, and I, I think he's. I think there is a. I know we've said before when we were talking about misery and when we've been talking about The Shining and when we've talked about Carrie that he's not been brilliant at representing women. Mm. We've said that that you know they're not as rounded as the male characters, and I sort of. Um, excused him a little bit by saying he writes what he knows and he's a man yeah but i think he's trying to show that it's not as simple as women are women and men are men and we should just get on with it he's saying look this is a tension going on here and i think he's doing that over and over and over and over again throughout all of him you think when we look at bev in um it we see the same tensions yeah. as she's when she becomes an adult. She doesn't have any agency and power, and she, she switches has, a father for Tom Rogan. And, yeah, and, and she has to take that back for herself. All the way at the beginning, when we look at Carrie, she's not empowered until she takes that for herself, and it doesn't go particularly well for her, does it? No. But he's he's interrogating the way women are treated in society. I think. Sure. Um, and I think that I, I do think because Amy is a, is a problematic figure in that you can't. I think because of the way that the the, the novella is is set up, King is aware that it doesn't function as a text unless you feel empathy for Mort Rainey. Yeah. Absolutely. So, however, what he does well, I think, is that there is a recognition at various points from from both vantage points that they are both culpable and have both played a role in the disintegration of the, of their married life. Yes. So he some you know, he manages to establish um 
empathy for Amy and yeah. her perspective without taking any away from, from the sympathy that is necessary for the reader to feel for, for Mort. Yeah, I absolutely for, agree. For the, for, the, for the narrative to function. So let me ask you then, in um, line with that point, Yeah. I'm assuming you'd read this before. Um, once, yeah. So when you were rereading it this time, you knew that it was a multiple personality schizophrenia. And yeah. I don't think that's the right word anymore. But I think sure. multiple personality issue that mental health yeah. issue that Mark was having. So you knew that when you went into reading this time. Did that it's change? Associative personality disorder. Well, yeah. It's something, isn't it? It's not yeah. schizophrenia. That's become a... Sure. Yeah. Not nice word anymore. Sure. But did that colour your reading this time because you knew it was Mort doing it to himself? Um, because I, think... I spent time going, well, that does seem a bit unlikely that Mort could have done that. And how, how can we explain Mort? So I was questioning the, the narrative of whether it was possible for Mort sure. to do the things to it, you know? I, I think that it's sort of... So I think what I was doing... It absented John Shooter from my analytic process. Okay. In the sense that he becomes he becomes a composite of Mort's um, intellectual processes rather than somebody whose um, motivations you have to consider independently of everything else that's going on. Mm -hmm. So... You know, you see him as a, a, a composite of of, of Mort's um, yeah. intellect rather than as a separate entity. So I think it therefore made me more conscious of what everything represented to to Mort. Yeah. On, on his in his own right. You know I, what I mean? Yeah. That's no, I a know. Bad way of putting it. But. I know what you mean. I also had a bit of a not problem. But my mind kept going back to the dark half when I was reading sure. this. Yeah. And um, the things that George Stark could do. I mean, we we knew we know that George mm. Stark grew from Thad Beaumont. Yeah. And I probably internalised that, that a similar thing might be happening. I think... Because of their proximity within the chronology, it's, it's impossible not to invite that reading. Yeah. And I was wondering whether this was an invited reading that this, and so you get to the end and find out that it's really Mort doing it, and we're yeah. supposed to be surprised because we were expecting a George Stark. But then reading it this time, knowing that it wasn't a George Stark style situation. Sure. I was still seeing those parallels, but then having to question the, my reading. Yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> um, I think there has to be... Once you've trodden that ground, it, it's, it's, always, it's... I almost admire his, the balancing act that's gone on mm. for King. And he's managed to create something that is separate by not... by you know, by internalising that doubling process. Yeah. Um, while all, and, and therefore creating something that's distinct from the dark half, mm. while also acknowledging 
the, the, the textual process that has birthed <laughs> a novella like this one. And I think birthing is the right yeah, thing. Yeah, I think birthing is the right thing. Um, and I think, you know, we've got... Um, I think the two could be absolutely analysed side by side, couldn't they, the dark half and this? Well, We've got the, I think, the um, birthing. If anybody would like to write uh, a, an article for us for Pennywise Dreadful yeah. on that, on those two, I think that can be that's a case that can be made. Yeah, um, absolutely. And the difference is, I, my brain is ticking now, the differences, I think, are going to be quite significant. And I know that's a really vague word <laughs> to use, but I think those differences between George Stark and John Shooter are going to be the main points of what King's doing differently in the two stories. Sure. Um, I also had um, a thought just before we um, switched, or before you pressed Ooh. record. Okay. Um, I remember about six years ago, just after I'd revived uh, my PhD, I wrote a blog post for the for the IGA mm-hmm. um, on the Gothicization of Ian McEwen. Now, bear with me; it's quite. A, um, okay, I'm, I'm ready um, to be. I'm, I'm open. The, the broader context of of the piece was that I was asked during the process of my Bible. One of the questions I was asked was. Is it possible to read everything or anything through a gothic lens? Um, and my contention was that yes, it, it was. Now, and the example I sort of fixated upon, or I was asked to apply it to, was Ian McEwan. Now, okay. um, the reason that, that I find that significant now is that very recently Ian McEwan was asked to write a short story for. I can't remember whether it was the V&A or the Tate Modern or... It was to do with an anniversary um, installation of, of a, an, exi- an okay. exhibition at one of the major museums in the country, I think. I, I could be entirely wrong. But he wrote a short story called My Purple Scented Novel. Okay. Right. The theme he was given, or the remake he was given, it was broadly on the... On the um, on the theme of theft. So he wrote about um, this um, short story about two friends that had grown up sort of in, uh, or gone to college together, and they sort of had matching literary aspirations. And the narrator sort of publishes first, but as things progress, his friend sort of gets more recognition in literary circles. Mm-hmm and all that sort of thing, and he goes away and asks the narrator to house-sit, and he finds his latest manuscript on his desk. Okay. And he nicks it and copies it, changes verbs and, and a few phrases and whatever here and there, and publishes it under a very small press where it wouldn't get too much recognition but he ends up being published therefore first you know before his mate's original manuscript gets published mm-hmm. and um his mate gets done for well, this is obviously plagiarized from your friend's um novel that got published first and so it means that his friend ends up being 
derided in literary circles and effectively blackballed. And it, there, there were parallels in that oh, text. Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, uh, I, I doubt that McEwen could have written that novella without reading Secret Garden, Secret Window. But, um, I mean, it's entirely possible he didn't. But I just, I, I remember there, reading that there is a very few, recently. There is a few narratives out there about, um, what did we say it was called? Disassociative Disassociative identity uh, disorder. Uh, yeah. See, we can do that, Dawn. I can I can talk about it properly. Um, there are a few um, narratives out there where it's similar things going on, isn't there? But I think Stephen King, in reaching back to the dark half, mm. did something quite unusual doing this. And I agree, I think that, you know, going on, people like Ian, people like Ian McEwan writing, I think there is definitely been influence there. Mm. Definitely. So I think, so here we have, here we have Alan then, a novella where Stephen King has basically been influenced by his own work. Yeah. In writing this, what then potentially has gone on to influence other great writers with sure. this. Sure, and I don't think he, he gets enough credit for that. No. They're, they're not. Um, but I think because of the kind of themes we're dealing with here, I mean, I honestly don't think that Chuck Palahniuk could have written Fight Club without reading this first. No, no, yeah. I think, like, we discussed already about Fight Club and the parallels going on there. Um, and I think, again, I know we said last time when we were looking at... Um, the Langolias, that he's drawing on what he knows and he's drawing on cultural moments. Yeah. And I think he's he's managed that, like you said before, it's a really tightly written novella. There's no mm. fat on it. No. But he manages to paint a picture of what it's like to be a famous author in the late 80s, early 90s sort of a time. Yeah. And the ramifications and repercussions of that. But also from the point of view of the protagonist having a mental breakdown without having the knowledge that that's what's happening. Sure. And I think that's one of the ways we then empathise with Mort because we see him struggling, don't we? Mm. We can we coming from a twenty first century perspective where we we're more aware of mental health, we're more more aware of symptoms and things going on. So we can see that when Mort goes to sleep, that's a symptom of depression. Yeah. We can see things happening to Mort that might not have been as obvious then, but retrospectively looking back, he was writing what was going on that people weren't particularly picking up on. Does that make sense? Sure, sure. Mm. 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 I do wonder if, um, I mean, I, I couldn't possibly um, speak for you, obviously, but I'm wondering whether we, uh, I certainly felt it more acutely, um, the kind of, um, it, it sort of, the sense of imprisonment that you get from Mort, yeah. uh, both intellectual and physical, because of his, he has to sort of retreat to a remote place to, yeah. to do his writing, because he's been, he has to leave the marital home and, you know, Retreat to a and sort of... maintain a cordial, positive exterior while he's hurting. Yeah. But I mean, I wonder whether we felt it more, or I felt it more acutely because I'm in lockdown. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're 
we're all isolated but yeah no and i think i think you've probably got a very good point there that maybe we've hyper read more situation because we're in a similar one i know speaking personally my levels of productivity right now have hit the floor um yeah, I think and the it goes peaks and troughs, I think. <laughs> uh, it's one of those where I'm hyper-productive uh, um, or <laughs> can't be asked today. Well, three o'clock in the morning, I'm incredibly productive, but that's not, you know. And I think there's something going on there, there that we're able to empathise with more situation because we're feeling similar, you know, the isolation... Yeah. The being away from the people we care about, you know, all of that sort of a thing. Sure. But I, I wonder also whether, like, you're... And, and I think this maybe throws back to what we were saying before, because this, as I say, is a reread. Your, your well of empathy is no longer divided between three people. It can, it's divided between two. Mm. So so you, you feel a, a greater depth of empathy for both Mort and Amy because you don't have to feel any empathy for Shooter at all. I don't know whether I agree with that though Alan because I think I did feel empathy for Shooter. Shoot, uh, Still. Uh, mm, I do. I think it's not his fault that Mort created him. Oh so it's kind of like a Frankenstein's monster. Yeah, in that sort of a sense. I didn't ask to be born. I didn't ask to be born. You've dumped all this on me. All I want is the story that I ah. want and then I'll go away and everything Mort does to prove that he really did write that story what we know retrospectively is crap because he didn't write the story he stole it <laughs> but yeah. that's not Shooter's fault and everything Mort does to thwart Shooter Shooter's within the confines of Mort's head Shooter is an innocent party in all of this mm. you know he just wants he wants his rights. He wants his. He wants a story written for him, because it was stolen in the first place, and that's right. And I think I empathise with that. You know, as a victim of crime, and he's not. If you if you read it on a surface level, you know he's not saying I'm gonna. I'm going to go to the papers and. What's the word? No, he does sort of represent a, a level, a low level of threat. Yeah. It's just the, the way he's envisioned by his creator yeah. makes him look more threatening than he actually is or appear, you know, mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, manifests more threatening than I he actually is. I did empathise with him because on a surface level, he's done nothing wrong. On a surface level, he is the victim and Mort is the, is the aggressor. Hmm. So I hadn't considered that. Yeah, so uh, yeah, probably in a Frankenstein's creature sort of a, a fashion. I may have to reread this again. <laughs> I think this is a one of the joys of reading Stephen King that we can come up with two completely different perspectives. Well, we did, we we did in our previous mm -hmm. um, recording. We do quite frequently, don't we? Yeah. And we have different we ideas and different thoughts and. And I think that the um, the fact that that is possible is, is one of the, the great joys. Oh, yeah, because, you know, I've read some novels and I've played some video games where there, is any, there isn't anything but an authorial intent and they're hitting you over the head with what's going on. And whereas I think some of the gothic reading of this, novel, of this novella 
does hit you over the head. I don't, I, I, you know, I don't think he's just saying this is the way the story goes and that's the end of it and you do what I say. He's saying, sure. yeah, it's out in the world now. It belongs to you. You make of it what you will. Mm. Yes. He's not a bad fella, that king, really, you know. No, not really. Not really. So, do you want to talk about the end? <laughs> In I have terms to... of... And also how it departs in the film adaptation. Yeah, we could do that. I have to say that I've watched the film once. Mm -hmm. And I'd read the novella a couple of times before. Sure. But there were many years ago now, probably early 90s, when they first were, you know, the, yeah. the novella reading was probably the early 90s. And then I probably watched the film when it first came out. Probably, probably hired it from Blockbusters. That's how long ago it's going to have been. Really? Probably. Wow. Probably. But the point I'm making is I just got the endings completely mixed up as to which one was which. And when I was reading this time, I was waiting for the film ending to happen. Yeah, yeah. But of course, I mean, you can sort of see why the film ends the way it does. Yep. In that it's, um, I think it's there for the reader. It's, yep. a, it's a gift to the reader in terms of we're acknowledging that this is the way the short story that is the sort of the um, the intellectual the contested territory <laughs> of the uh, of the original text is, is um, so it's sort of recognition and an Easter egg for, for the mm. for the you know I also I thought, to pick up. I thought the ending would have fit the novella in a Richard Bachman sort of a fashion. Yes, and I think so, that was one of the things because it's got like I say it's going to have been thirty years ago since I read this, mm -hmm. and so I think I've probably I'm doing the we've done a lot of the Backman books now, haven't we? I think we've only got one, two left. Yeah, well, they've given that he's, he's supposed to be dead. Should there be any more left? <laughs> but I think you know we've done most of the Batman books and well. the lack of hope. And the nihilism that comes with Richard Bachman's stories. Sure. I think mixing those up in my head, the two endings, I mm. had a Richard Bachman-esque ending for this. Sure. But is it deliberate, therefore, to choose not to have not for, for Stephen King to write a Stephen King ending and not a Bachman one? Well, I don't know. I think well, the novella in itself, there's so much hopelessness that it lends itself to a Bachman until you get to the end and then everything's put right. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. But what, all, I'm, all I'm suggesting is that I'm wondering whether, whether just because it lends itself to a Bachman ending, the fact that King has refused the Bachman ending in favour of imposing his own. Yeah. Um is maybe um, a warning shot, well, not a warning shot, but um, a sign to the reader that, no, sorry, Bachman is still dead, it's me. Mm. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure because we've said this today, that he's not the greatest of enders. Did we say that today? True, true. He likes the journey, not the destination. And yeah. I think the journey is hopeless. 
I think Mort's journey is particularly hopeless in this novella. Oh yeah, there, there is a, there, particularly on a reread. I think mm. there's a, there's an inevitability, and it's, to, it's very to, very Backman esque, and I think that that it needed to be a King ending rather than a Backman ending, mm-hmm. because I think that signals that tension within himself to some degree. Sure. You know, sure. that reflection of what's going on in the world and he's a writer and, you know, all of I'm those. Sure, I'm not sure we've ever had this conversation before, but can Bachman end books? Yeah, I think Bachman ends books better than King in a lot of ways. Not all, but... I, the Running yeah, Man is certainly a very satisfying one. I think the endings... That's the, the one I'm sort of drawn to as an example of, yeah, Bachman can end them. I think the negative endings of Bachman's books are more more on point for the narratives yeah they're also very definitive mm-hmm. i think maybe because we've, we've talked about this certainly because of the because king is drawn to the the secular nature of everything mm-hmm. uh, cycles kind of are a constant deference of any definitive ending yeah so that means that it, he isn't going to be drawn to conclude any of his um, narratives and cut them off in a way that Bachman's like, no, give me, I'll yes. guillotine the fuck out of the thing. Right, and I think that's a, it, it cuts off, I think Bachman's negativity cuts off, oops, that's my computer, Bachman's negativity cuts off the hope uh. of renewal that, King's fictional endings seem to still have. Sure. Although, without King's hope of renewal, you don't get to see the emergence of Ted the Bastard. <laughs> Although, the full emergence of Ted the Bastard. And I kind of feel that that is necessary. Mm. I think this ending isn't a hopeful ending. No. But I think there is a promise of some sort of renewal. Amy is still there. She's being controlled by a man. But she's still there. There is still... Mm. You know, we don't know that in six months she wouldn't have done the same thing to Ted and been found in another motel by sure. Ted. So there is still some sort of hope there. But the ending itself isn't hopeful. She's no. back to being controlled. She's back to being a woman with no agency and no identity of her own. She is now Mrs. Ted, not Amy yeah. in her own right. And also, you have the sense that she's had the secret window that was her domain taken away yeah absolutely it is nearly a backman ending but killing more not quite not quite killing more allows some sort of hope for renewal and yeah. out of that cycle don't know. Mm. whereas i think if mm. that had been a backman book i think mort would have died but shooter wouldn't ah i think shooter would have taken over Mort and become the dominant personality and then Mort would have been trapped in But then also we would have been able to reclaim his story. Yeah. I think that would have been a more Bachman-esque ending and I think in terms of the story itself that might have been more satisfying. Yeah, I'm with you. Oh, so just do a quick aside. Okay. Because this might lighten the mood before we... Because we're in bleak, bleak, bleak. Um... I did wonder, because, um, you know, because I've been doing this 
while completing some coursework for a, a professional, some professional development initiatives I'm partaking in during lockdown, I reread some of it and had the audiobook on the go while I was doing my coursework. Is it any wonder that you know that the house was set on fire when the, when the book is read by James Woods? And you think the man has an open flame for a head? Yeah, he's Hades. Do you know? What? I also listened to the audiobook version of this while I was doing other things, and yeah, every every sentence I was like, it's Hades. Yeah, yeah. Open flame would... for a head. Of course, your house is on fire. <laughs> But um, I, think, I think that in itself raises some questions about how narratives are delivered, though. Yeah. Doesn't it? I listened to the Langolias as well, and mm-hmm. that was Willem Dafoe. Oh, really? Mm. And I think mm. there was something in the delivery of that being Willem Dafoe and the things Willem Dafoe's done that coloured my listening. And then the same with this one, constantly thinking about Hades coloured my ideas of what was going on and hell and the underworld and the gothicness of that and so maybe at some point we might think about looking at who does these audiobooks yeah and why they might be chosen and why they might be good or bad or you know is would it have been would it have been as for you not me would it have been as entertaining informative interesting listenable if it had been Stephen King himself reading it I mean I've I've seen a few YouTube clips of, of King reading his own stuff and he and you can tell that his a lot of his um, tales come from the sort of oral folktale traditions just from the way he delivers them Um, but also in terms of the way that he formulates dialogue Mm -hmm. and and the way that well the the way that he constructs everything Mm -hmm. sort of very much like that Um, would it have coloured your listening experience to have Stephen King Grover Gardner whoever instead of Hades Sure. I think, well, all I would say is that if you're commissioning somebody to, to, to record the audiobook, King, the sort of textual resource that, that King provides you with allows you to be more creative with the decisions you make in terms mm. of who you hire to, to read them. I mean, you know, it wouldn't... It also wouldn't work if you had Gilbert Gottfried reading all of them. um, (laughs) He's he's perfect reading Fifty Shades of Grey, though. Absolutely. I've never heard anything as majestic as that. I think think our listener should right now stop. (laughs) And I'm going to... I believe you're you're inviting our constant listener to stop listening. And I'm going to add a little bit on the end, I reckon, of... of... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so yeah at the end at the very end of this if you keep listening what you should just do is, is just cut impose loads of cuts of throughout of Gilbert Goffey going vagina <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll leave I'll leave 10 seconds or so and then there'll be, there'll be a clip of Gilbert Godfrey reading from uh, Fifty Shades of Grey it is definitely not safe for work 
No. But anyways, yeah. No, I think Stephen King's reading um, style is completely different from James Woods's, And mm. I think that my listening experience was coloured by James Woods and my previous knowledge and the connotations I have of him as an actor and the roles yeah. he's played. Even though the role post-dates this yeah. novella. Yeah. But yeah, I was I could see ideas of hell and what mm. Mort was going through and Shooter being a construction come from hell. You know, all of those things. And that isn't anything to do with Stephen King's writing at all. Mm. That is absolutely coloured by the person representing Mort. Um, I've just had another thought of what it might conjure. You know the whole secret window thing? Mm-hmm. Um, you know we we mentioned prisons? Mm-hmm. Um, does it not evoke Silence of the Lambs to you? You know how um, Hannibal Lecter has the chalk drawing of um, what's outside the window of his hotel in I can't remember which I think it was Venice or Florence or one of the sort of one of his favourite cities. He draws um, a chalk picture mm. of what's outside his window on his cell wall, mm. and I'm, I'm wondering whether that's the kind of mm, a, a kind of similar thing going on in the prison that Malt creates, and the, the, what the secret window therefore represents. Yeah as a tool of escape. Because my mind's got itself all muxtipated, does Secret Window have that huge glass-plated window looking out over Castle Lake? Or is that the dark half? I don't think it's a lake, is it? Uh, I can't remember that now. <laughs> I can't remember. Um... He writes all over it, doesn't he? Is that right? Or is that... No, it's not the dark half. He writes... Yeah. I think that there's a huge window in one of those two stories. Mm. And I think I've associated that with this story because it's the idea of the window being broken and something coming out that should remain hidden. And in this case, it's John Shooter. And the secret of that very first story being mm. stolen, which should always have remained hidden, really, shouldn't it? That should have been... That's the secret... Yes. And the window inside Mort's mind breaks. And my I've got an association in my head of that being the window in the living room. But that might not be. That might be from the dark half. Don't know. Our listener might be able to tell us whether yeah. we've gone completely wrong. Or yeah, I mean, we're not supposed to answer all the questions and close off all the avenues of discussion I think there is a metaphor to be had there about the breaking of a window internally inside Mort's head and a breaking of real windows don't know absolutely a secret indeed and I think I recall Stephen King in an interview somewhere saying that one of the things he wanted to do with this was explore what would happen when the window between reality and unreality breaks, disintegrates, mm. and what happens there, what what repercussions are there? That's I, I sort of remember something. I tell you what, Alan, I need well, to go back to life. This lockdown has affected my ability to brain. Yeah, I think it's affected everyone's ability to brain, but. And as, as I say, I think it just it opens a few uh, 
potential pathways for discussion. I think it does. You're right. For our listeners. So they can brain on our behalf if they've decided to... uh, Right now, anybody can ...go to Bournemouth Beach while we stay in lockdown or they decided to go to Barnard Castle. Well, that's all right, though, isn't it, going to Barnard Castle? Yeah, only if you check your eyesight. Yeah, well, obviously... Michael Gove's done that a few times, you know, gone out driving to check his eyesight. He said that. Mm. Don't want to get started on that. No, shut up, don't. No, no, so... hmm. Anyways. It's a rant for a different day (laughs) and a different podcast. (laughs) Yes, that is. So, Alan, I think it's about time to wrap up again. I think so. We've We've been chattering a while again, so... As is our custom. So next time, Alan, we're going to talk about the library policeman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, possibly the creepiest policeman I've ever seen. <laughs> Probably the creepiest library I've ever come across. Yeah. To right, so honest. I think I will be uh, passing my uh, my local library with, with bated breath when I uh, next see its doorway. I think I might never go to a library again. <laughs> No, that's not right. Our libraries, no. British libraries, all libraries across the world are wonderful, wonderful resources that allow people to lose themselves if they're in situations they don't like or just resources and computers. Libraries are really, really useful and we should support them. They are indeed. And I think it's worth um, sort of mentioning this or promoting this message of support for local libraries before we discourage people from going ever and ever again. <laughs> yeah, but it's only it's only a certain manifestation of the library. Indeed. I'll bring my uh, my selection of strawberry shoelaces. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I won't have any posters up. No. No. Mm. No. No. Anyways, uh, so... Till next time. Till next time. Um, I'd just like to do our normal reminders of social media. Absolutely. Um, Facebook.com forward slash Pennywise Dreadful. Twitter at Pennywise Dread. Email Pennywise Dreadful at gmail.com. So if you'd like to get in touch with us, those are the channels you may use. Yep, absolutely. I do have to acknowledge and be upfront with I'm not using social media as much, so it's not as likely that I would see Facebook posts because in line with a lot of the world um the hits the um ability of facebook to incite hate um and their inability to police that very well i have taken a step back from facebook associated media fair so whilst we are still open channels yeah that presence is still there i do get notifications on my computer but it's not something I would respond to um, as quickly as I would have in the past because I am taking a stand against Facebook's policies. That's fair enough. But Twitter and Gmail are still Absolutely. standing by as as if you want to incite a or you know initiate a um, conversation. A conversation, indeed. Right, so I could be able to think of the, the word conversation, but there you go. So we will see you next time, Dr. Gregory Fox, for Indeed. an exciting episode of The Library Policeman. Indeed. Bye!
Audible.com presents 50 Shades of Grey, the erotic best-selling novel read by Gilbert Gottfried. My inner goddess has stopped dancing and is staring too, open mouth and drooling slightly. Hear it the way it was meant to be heard. Keep still, he orders, and slowly he inserts his thumb inside me, rotating it around and around, stroking the front wall of my vagina. No fisting, you say. Anything else you object to? I agree to the fisting, but I'd really like to claim your ass! Famed voice actor Gilbert Gottfried gives a reading that can only be described as sensual. Holy fuck is this wrong! But holy hell, is it erotic? Let Christian Grey seduce you over and over again through the voice of Gilbert Gottfried. But when he hits my clitoris, I cry out loudly. Oh, please, I groan. Quiet, he orders. Not taking his eyes off mine, he scrunches my panties in his hand, holds them up to his nose, and inhales deeply. His hands reach around and touch my breasts, and my nipples pucker at his touch. Holy shit, this is hot.